Hi, and welcome to the East Cobb Presbyterian Church Student Ministry Podcast, where all lessons from your junior high leaders, youth staff members, and discipleship group leaders are available. We pray that this podcast will bless you and grow you in your knowledge and love of Jesus. Keep listening for this week's message. All right, guys, so oddly, idolatry is a subject that I'm really excited about talking about. (laughs) Um, I've actually been thinking um, about this since college, which is your next, next stage in life. So in my family, my dad requires three questions to be answered. Is there a God? If so, who is he? And then what does he have to do with you? And I found that in college, those are very formative years where you're really figuring it, that out. I mean, like most of you guys, I went, I went to a Christian high school. I grew up in a Christian household. I went to church every Sunday. And um, I knew plenty of things, and I did have faith. But when I went to college, I loved it. I loved finding out that Jesus, the one true God, was really my God, and I dove into the Bible, and I learned so much and grew so much spiritually, and it was an amazing time in life for me. But not everyone that I was around uh, came, became solidified with what they had learned growing up. And so um, we're going to talk about idolatry, but I want to ask you guys first, what do you think of, and there are no wrong answers here, when you hear the word idolatry? What do you think of? Mia? That's good. That's good. What else? What do you think of when you think of idolatry? Yes, Olivia. Creating a god in the image you desire. Oh, nice. She she cheated. She cheated. Really though, what 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 image comes to your head when you think of idolatry? Idol. Yes. Yes. Usually people think of a block of wood or they think of some of the things we talk about in the church are money, possessions, power, that kind of thing. But yes, Olivia's right. For tonight, our definition is idolatry is creating a God in the image you desire. Um, so I'm going to read to you what God thinks about idolatry. It starts off kind of serious, but I really I love this passage because I think God is funny. So I hope you hear his humor in this. So it starts out serious. All who make idols are nothing. All the things they treasure are worthless. Those who would speak up for them are blind. They are ignorant to their own shame. Shame. Who shapes a god and casts an idol which can profit nothing? People who do that will be put to shame. Such craftsmen are only human beings. This is where I start seeing his sense of humor. Let them all come together and take their stand. They will be brought down to terror and shame. The blacksmith takes a tool and works with it in the coals. He shapes an idol with hammers. He forges it with the might of his arm. He gets hungry and he loses strength. He drinks no water and he grows faint. The carpenter measures with a line and makes an outline with a marker. He roughs it with chisels and marks it with compasses. He shapes it in human form human form in all its glory, that it may dwell in a shrine. He cut down cedars or perhaps took a cypress or oak. He let it grow among the trees of the forest or planted a pine 
and the rain made it grow. It is used as fuel for burning. Some of it he takes and warms himself, and he kindles a fire and he bakes bread, but he also fashions a god and worships it. He makes an idol and he bows down to it. Hear that? Half of the wood he burns in the fire. Over it he prepares his meal. He roasts his meat and eats his fill. He also warms himself and he says, Ah, I am warm. I see the fire. And from the rest he makes a god, his idol. He bows down to it and worships. He prays to it and says, Save me, you are my god. They know nothing. They understand nothing. Their eyes are plastered over so they cannot see and their minds closed so they cannot understand. No one stops to think. No one has the knowledge or understanding to say, half of it I used for fuel. I even baked bread over its coals. I roasted meat and I ate. Shall I make a detestable thing from what is left? Shall I bow down to a block of wood? Such a person feeds on ashes. A deluded heart misleads him. He cannot save himself or say, is not this thing in my right hand a lie? So I really, really enjoy that passage because I, I think God's being pretty funny. I mean, it literally says in the scriptures, ah, I'm warm, I see fire. <laughs> I think that's so funny. I think, I think God is hysterical there. And, and it is funny to make an idol. It seems ridiculous. Um, so one of, one of the key things I want you to think about when we're talking about idolatry is there some keywords that help you know you are making an idol. If you say, I will not worship a God who, I cannot wa- worship a God who, I cannot worship a God who does this, I will not worship a God who does this, then you're creating an idol. If you, like, let's picture, we have the emoji with the heart eyes here. This is God, this is the perfect picture of God. You have that over here and you're like, oh, I really don't like that God makes hell. So you erase one heart eye. Okay, now this is not God. This is something you created to be what you desire. Because the God of the Bible defines himself. He is God and stands alone apart from us trying to interpret what we want him to be. So I actually went to China. This is not a picture from the temple I went into. It was not that pretty. I studied Mandarin for a summer. I was awful languages. I was actually telling Mela that on the way over here. I learned two questions. I could ask, how old are you? And um, how much are you? So I had this cute little girl I ran into. And I leaned down and I said in Mandarin, how much are you? <laughs> and her mom grabbed her and ran away. <laughs> so after six weeks, I worked out my two questions and I figured out which was which. And I was in Beijing. There's two cute Asian kids, so cute. And I lean down and I say, how old are you? And then I look up and the dad's like, uh, we're from New York. <laughs> Did not speak Mandarin at all, which was good because I didn't speak Mandarin. So it was not going to be good if they answered me. I would have had no idea how old they are. Um, but while I was there, I, a friend of mine took me to a Buddhist temple. Wasn't this pretty? Um, definitely wooden idols. They were taking care of them. And she talked about going there. I mean, when you're there, you're buying incense. You're bringing gifts to these gods. They're, they're empty blocks of wood or made up like this with metal. And, and what she's praying for is, I want my eyes to be big. 
that was that was really like her thing she wanted bigger eyes and that is really typical for a buddhist temple you're coming in i want my daughter to be well i want this child to be a boy whatever it is it's not the personal god we have and when i left the temple i felt empty sad there were all of these gods but they weren't a god and i was reading in deuteronomy at that time and god brought me to this verse it says what other nation is so great as ours as to have the lord our, uh, to have the lord our god near us whenever we pray to him that's that's our god our god is near us when we pray to him he's listening and he's not there just to make my eyes bigger he's there to comfort me when things are hard He's there to take me through suffering. He's there to bring me joy. He's there when I'm happy to rejoice with me and be excited with me. He is my heavenly father. Um, So I want to focus tonight on why we can trust scripture to define God. And it is where we go to define God. But I also want to mention scripture is not just for defining God. God uses it. In Hebrews 4.12 it says... That the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, piercing soul and spirit. I think it says dividing, actually. He uses his word within us um, to shape us. So in college, I was dealing with some sin that that had been done to me in high school. Um, And it was pretty serious. And I also was dealing with some of my own sin that I had done. And I was in Isaiah. Abby's been reading Isaiah. I told her, don't start in 30. It's really hard, the first part. (laughs) Um, But it gets really, really good. And in 30, there's the verse in verse 18. It talks about how God is waiting on high to have compassion on you. He longs to be gracious to you. And it really is that picture of he's on the edge of his seat. Like he adores us and wants to be with us, to bring us reconciliation with him. Um, Also in there is probably a verse that all of y'all could hold on to because you're in the middle of studying all the time. You're doing sports. You're doing crew, church. You have so much that you're juggling and feel anxious all the time. And God says in verse 15, in repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. I love that. Repentance and rest is your salvation. And quietness and trust is your strength. That's the good God we worship. Well, also, a verse that I never would have come across had God not drawn me to it. Verse 13 says, This sin will become for you like a high wall, cracked and bulging, that collapses suddenly in an instant. It will break in pieces like pottery, shattered so mercilessly that among its pieces, not a fragment will be found for taking coals from a hearth or scooping water out of a cistern. So the picture here that God was painting for me is that I was still trying to handle my sin on my own and the sin against me. And he was shattering it so there wasn't even a shard that I could pick up and draw water to provide for myself. Later on in Isaiah 55, it says, Come to me, all you who have no money, come buy wine and milk without cost. So he wants to provide for us lavishly without us bringing anything to him. It's crazy and phenomenal. Um, so these are the reasons I want you to trust, trust scripture. All right, we're going to get a little more intellectual now. This is, this is kind of the stuff I like. 
But why can we trust the Bible to define God? I like this quote. Uh, Charles Spurgeon says, defend the Bible. I, was as, I would as soon defend a lion, unchain it, and it will defend itself. So I'm teaching you these things because I think it's good for you to know why you can trust the Bible. These are not weapons for you to use. In First Peter, it talks about us being ready to have a defense or to be ready to have a word to explain the hope that we have with gentleness and respect. So we're not on the offense. We're not on the attack. But we need to understand why we, why we trust the Bible, why we trust God to define himself. All right, the Bible, it is a reliable collection of historical documents. Okay, so some of you guys know some of this, but it is 66 volumes in the Bible, right? It is written over 1,500 years. Imagine you writing something that someone else is writing about 1,500 years before you. How different would that be? Okay, 1,500 years, 40-plus authors, fishermen, tax collectors, doctors, historians, kings, generals. These are the different jobs that people had that wrote the Bible. Think of how different their perspective is, and yet we have one concrete God, three different continents it was written on, Asia, Africa, and Europe. Think about you writing about God and your Chinese brother who's undergoing persecution right now writing about God, and yet one consistent God. Three different languages. Y'all should know these. What are the languages? Hebrew. Hebrew. And there's one language in the New Testament where they spoke, so it's a little bit less. Do you know what it is? It's Aramaic. So three languages um, that, that, it is, that the Bible is written in. Okay. This is so fun for me. So who's heard of Homer's Iliad? Okay. Homer wrote Iliad. The first writing that we have of that, the first manuscript, is 2,100 years after he wrote that. We have a few hundred, 2,100 years. So nothing in between, no manuscript, and yet we totally credit it to him. Aristotle, um, Julius Caesar's Gaelic Wars, uh, Gaelic Wars, sorry. They were, the first manuscript we have after they lived is one thousand years after they lived we have a few dozen few dozen one thousand years and we trust those to be accurate okay the bible new testament within two decades of its completion we have over six thousand six thousand manuscripts proportions of manuscripts and even if we didn't have any of that our early fathers of the faith wrote about scripture so much that we could put the Bible back together except for 11 verses. Isn't that crazy? This is dependable. If you have the New American Standard, NIV, ESV, when they go back to put a translation together, they go back to those writings that were not just in Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic. At this point, they had been in Coptic, Latin, and Syriac as well. So they're comparing languages. They're making sure no word, no verse is left out. Nothing is added. This is a reliable collection of historical documents. It's amazing. It's written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. 
This is really important. This is not a made-up story that was written so that you guys, like, oh, I think this is what happened, I'm going to tell you about this thing that happened 20 years ago. This is written by people who saw this. I'm going to leave this up and read the scripture, so if you want to write down this. In 1 John, John says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and touched with our hands, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it, and we testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. So did you hear that? He's repeating to you, I was there. I touched him. I saw him. I'm telling you about him. You can trust my witness. Okay. Uh, also, um, and now I'll, I'll move it on to the next. This was the one we just read. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. The Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, then to the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me as one abnormally born. So I don't know how they figured this out, but when this was written, still 300 eyewitnesses were still alive when 1 Corinthians was completed. So if there was an issue, if someone didn't believe this, they could have taken issue at that point. But this was validated by eyewitnesses. All right, the next thing. The eyewitnesses report supernatural events that took place in the fulfillment of specific prophecies. So this week, because you know how God works, where everything comes together at the same time. I mean, also this morning, my entire talk was Albert Moeller's podcast. So that was fantastic. Um, but uh, I was reading through John. I read through, I use She Reads Truth as my app. So that's my daily scripture reading. And we're reading through John and we get to John 19. So I don't know if y'all know about the gospels, but each one has a purpose. Okay, John's is not the fulfillment of prophecy. That's Matthew's focus. John is talking about Jesus being the son of God. But in John 19, and I, I think it's 19, when Jesus is dying, you can't help but see how prophecy is fulfilled. I mean, it is crazy. So way long ago, when Isaiah, in 53 is, in Isaiah 53 is writing about the crucifixion, crucifixion didn't exist. He did not know what that was. So when someone wrote that even his bones were not broken, they did not know how amazing this was. So typically in a crucifixion, the bones weren't broken. But on this particular time, it was during Passover, they were going to break everyone's legs because it would finish the death, okay? So the point is, Christ is hanging. They break his legs. He falls the rest of the way. His lungs are going to collapse and he will die. They break, they break the legs of the people on either side of Jesus. Jesus is already dead. They don't break his bones. That's a fulfillment of prophecy from a thousand years before. And that's amazing. And not just that, but then they pierce his side, just like it said they would. And then they divide his, his belongings 
just like it said he would. But what they didn't do is divide his garment. Because of the way it was made, I didn't even know that till this week when I was reading in John 19, they cast lots for his garment. That was also prophesied. And that's just in, in one book of John. It is amazing. So I want to, this is where people want to break down the Bible. We don't want to believe in the supernatural. There's always these excuses. You know, this really doesn't make sense, or I can excuse it this way, or if I match it up with this different historical fact. So I just want to give you an illustration. I was going to give you an illustration uh, with the person being, I told Mayella this, an emu girl. Apparently, that's an animal. It's emo. (laughs) My kids thought that was hysterical. So I'm not using that because I failed trying to make this relevant. But there was a guy, he'd never read the Bible before. Someone introduced him to the gospel. He got really excited. He's reading the Bible. He's getting to the part where the Israelites are coming out of Egypt. They've escaped slavery after 400 years, and they come across this huge sea. What are they going to do? And God parts the waters. And so the guy is like, praise God, praise God. Oh, my goodness. And this professor of religion is walking by at the same time. And he said, why are you praising God? And he goes, you would not believe this. All of the Israelites are running out of slavery and they get stuck at a sea and then God parts the waters and they walk through on dry land. And he's like, oh, oh, I just, it's a misprint. So we thought that it was the Red Sea, but it's actually the Reed Sea. So it was really just like two to four inches of water. And if the wind blew just right, like it probably would have been dry land. So the guy's like, So he sits down, he's reading his Bible again, and the professor of religion walks off. And all of a sudden, he's like, praise God, praise God. And the guy comes back, and he's like, what in the world are you doing? And he goes, I can't can't help but tell you, I was so disappointed after what you just told me. But then God drowned the entire Egyptian army in less than four inches of water. (laughs) And that is just such a perfect illustration. We can't take away from the miracles of God. He is miraculous. He is amazing. And, And we can't make excuses for it. All right. So the last point, the authors claimed that their writings are divine rather than human in origin. We see this a few times. Um, it's First uh, Corinthians three sixteen, Second Corinthians three sixteen. For for all Scripture is God breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and righteousness. In First Peter, it talks about um, he, he's talking about when Christ came and that he was going to be revealed and it talks about the prophets and how they were searching intently and with greatest care trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. And then this verse, for prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So it's a repeated theme. God is speaking uh, through people. All right. This is, uh, oops, before we get there, this, this is the hard part. So what are the ways we see people make idols in our culture? And you're going to talk about this when we break out. But I'm going to point out one I see our culture doing and one I've struggled with in my life. 
So the one I've struggled with in my life is I don't want, I mentioned this one earlier, I wish God hadn't made a hell. I don't, I don't want that to be true. So, sometimes I'm okay with it, but it's hard. And I think, well, I love, I wouldn't do that. And then I think about how I love and I think, <laughs> I, I have some people in here that this room I care deeply for, but I would never, ever give one of my children for you. And God gave his son for us. He made a body for himself to die in because he wanted to reconcile us to him. In Romans, it says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So just think about, while we were yet sinners, Paul, who we think of as the hero of the faith, he was murdering Christians when God came to him to redeem him. David, who he said was a man after his own heart, he had sex with someone else's wife. And when she got pregnant, he sent her husband into battle to die so that it would cover it up and no one would know that he was the one that got her pregnant. In the garden, when Adam and Eve sinned, the first thing they did was they ran away and hid. And that was not good enough for God. He went after them. He pursued them. I, I just, I, I think about how ferociously God loves and I think I cannot judge him. It's not, not fair to tell him he is not loving because he created a hell. He, he clearly knows what he's doing. I would not love like him. And I will admit that. All right, this one's hard. What does our culture think? I think the most popular thing our culture does right now is say they will not believe in a God who does not think homosexuality is okay. That, and he doesn't. He, he says we were created in his image, man and woman. He says that it is unnatural in Romans. And it's hard because I don't know about you, I have family members that struggle with transgender, that struggle with homosexuality. And it, it is hard. And again, not creating arrows for you to put at someone and don't withdraw completely from someone who is struggling. Okay, we are experiencing this right now and I'm watching my mom pursue my cousin with the gospel. And it is a beautiful thing, but it is hard. So just some facts so you know. Obviously, it requires a man and a woman to have a baby. That is the natural nature have to have an egg and a sperm. It's just, that's how it works. A gay man cannot give blood in the United States. They, they spread so many sexually transmitted diseases because of the way that they are together. They actually, this has nothing to do with being Christian. Medical, hospitals will not allow their blood. They, they do, it's not helpful for medically fragile people. 56% of transgender people have been trafficked for sex. The suicide rate is, the suicide attempts are 30 to 50% at any point, whether they're transitioning after they transition while they're struggling. Gender dysphoria is a real thing, but coming out of it, if we let people go through puberty, 98% of men come out of it over 80% of women. And this isn't something you want for someone you don't want. I don't want to see my cousin struggle with suicidal rates, uh, suicidal thoughts. 
and ideations. I don't want to see him depressed. I don't want to have seen a family member who sought out the homosexual lifestyle die because she destroyed her body in her 30s with alcoholism. Is that everyone's story? No, but these are, these are close stories for me, and they're not great. Um, so I just, I am saying that is a very tough subject, and it's just for you guys to understand it is true science backs what is natural um, and not just not just God they back his it backs his creation um, so in the end when you are deciding who God is what I'm challenging you to do is to fear God and not man why the fear of man lays a snare but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe so think of man. I mean, even if you just thought of me, who I'm trying to be like God, but I am selfish. I am looking out for myself, my own agenda. I am working out for myself. I'm eating for myself. All of the things. I am taking care of me. Uh, and I think of me first before I think of y'all, which is not what God called us to do. I am selfish. But God, God, he is not. Remember, he pursues you. He is safe. He is good. He trusts. He carries us through. And he created a heaven where there will be no more suffering. There will be no more awkwardness of how we don't fit in with the world. That we will have a family in heaven. He has created a great place. He is worth trusting. And in the meantime, he's worth fearing and not man. Um, okay, so that's what I'm going to end you on, end with on. Um, when you break out, you're going to talk about which ways you might struggle with redefining God, which ways you think our culture is struggling with. I mean, there are plenty of ways. Why does God let bad things happen to good people? And then think, it, does scripture address these things? And if so, what does it say? So let me pray for you guys, okay? God, we went through some really good and encouraging stuff tonight and some tough conversations as well. And I pray that as we break out that we're willing to talk candidly to each other. But most of all, I, I hope we're willing to hear your truth, to trust in you. Um, we have thousands of years now where we have seen you be faithful to your people. You're a great God. And I thank you for pursuing us, even when we are just pursuing ourselves and trying to fit in with this culture, which I know I do way too often. I'm sure we all do. So I pray that you forgive us, that you help us to be more like you, that we will be a light that shines, that we will offer peace and hope to those around us. And it's in your name I pray. Amen. into small groups. Millie, thank you thank so you. much.